way, Canada doesn't have such a close relationship with the EU, but then Canada is more than 3,000 miles away from the European Union, and it is not on the doorstep. It may not be looking to cut, say, environmental measures so that it can reduce prices and undercut our European brothers and sisters. I'm going to turn to a professor of EU law, a senior follow, uh, fellow too at uh, UK in a Changing Europe, Catherine Barnard, for uh, guidance on this. She joins us now. Good afternoon to you, Professor. Hello there. So, um, what does the European Court of Justice actually do? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I thought we start broad brushstrokes first of all. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, it sits in Luxembourg, yes. not Strasbourg. It mustn't be confused with the European Court of Human Rights, and that's where the Court of Human Rights adjudicates on the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, and it's entirely separate to the Court of Justice. What does the Court of Justice do? Well, it acts as a referee, really. It right. makes sure that member states of the European Union comply with their obligations under EU law. It interprets EU law, and if someone thinks EU law is invalid, you can go to the court and say it's invalid, and the Court of Justice can declare it invalid. Now, if I'm reading this right, it is certainly being suggested by some on the more Brexiteer side of things that they don't trust the European Court of Justice. There's a sort of suggestion that it would be biased in favour of the EU. Well, I mean, at the moment, while we're a member state, in fact, um, we have relied on the Court of Justice quite a lot to ensure that other member states play ball too. Um, and therefore, other member states respect EU law, so there is a level playing field. Right. Um, and so this, the deep suspicion of the Court of Justice um, is at one level somewhat perplexing. Now, if you don't like any type of external control, then of course you wouldn't like the Court of right. Justice either. Right. Right. But on the other hand, if you think, if you know, if you're a member of a club, there's ultimately someone somewhere has got to have the final say on what the rules of that club might be. Now, if we leave and we leave with a free trade agreement um, negotiated in the in the year that comes, um, there will still need to be. Uh, some sort of referee but in the more international arena the referee tends to be um, arbitration as yeah. opposed to a court of justice and that is probably what's being planned for the um, free trade agreement the UK's got but if there is a point of EU law um, then the Court of Justice might get involved and in, that's exactly the position under the withdrawal agreement. That's the divorce text that um, Theresa May negotiated and Boris Johnson Modified, amended and that's yeah. the, one that, the one that's just um, gone through Parliament. So, y your explanation ties with my own interpretation that it's, it, it does sit there judging on parts of European Union law. And I'm just struggling, Catherine, to understand, I, I get your point that if you just want to completely break away, you don't want any connection with European Union overseeing you. But surely it's going to be more convenient, it will facilitate free trade for us to have a clear understanding of the various nuances of European law. And if we start to come a cropper, then surely the court is the place for it to be adjudicated. Well, that's right, and that's and that's of course the understanding of the single the single market, the EU single market, that the the court sort of sits in the middle as referee and sorts things out. And crucially for traders, um, it means I, as a trader, I can rely at the moment on EU law. And if I don't know what EU law means, my case can go off to the Court of Justice to sort right. it out. Right. But in the future. Um, I won't be able to do that if you're going to a more interna international model like the one that Canada's got. I won't be able to rely on the free trade agreement. If the French are causing me trouble, 
um, because I run a gin business and I want to import my gin into France and the French are causing me trouble. At the moment, I can go to a French court and say, oi, you know, you're not complying with EU law and if necessary, I can go to the Court of Justice. In a future free trade agreement, if the French are causing me trouble, I will have to lobby the UK government and get the UK government to raise my case in the international forum with the EU and then it might eventually go to arbitration. The big problem is if I'm a small business, really will the yeah. government um, listen to me or will they only listen to the big players um, who are having trouble with the French or the Germans or whatever? What about the the geographical aspect here. In, in my introduction, I was saying that, that some of the Brexiteers are sort of complaining or, or, or indicating, well, Canada's trade arrangements with the EU don't include the ECJ. Why should the UK's? And, and I asserted that Canada is 3,000 miles from, from the shores of the EU, and the UK is in a unique position, uh, both as in terms of its geography and, I, I guess, in, in terms of its future trading arrangement with, with the EU, being a, the first to leave the fold. Uh, I'm really thinking that issues, for example, if we were to drop environmental standards, we could then lower prices on certain goods. We could have prices on certain goods much lower than they would be across the English Channel. And the European Union will view that perhaps as, as extremely, um, uh, perhaps overly competitive, something that would be need need to be railed in. So I, 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 I'm guessing that their concerns in Europe about our unique position um, produce unique problems that need to be solved. You're absolutely right. And geography matters in trade. Um, and I think, as you said in your introduction, 45-50% of our trade yeah. is with the EU. And geography matters. Just think about it practically. If you run um, a business um, selling cupcakes, do you sell your cupcakes to the next village or the next town? Or do you sell it to um, the good folk in Melbourne or Sydney? Well, the answer is you sell locally because, yeah. of course, the transport costs and all the other problems are much more straightforward. So geography does matter in trade. And what the EU is worried about is that if um, we decide to have full regulatory dealignment, in other words, we don't comply with EU rules, yeah. then they're worried that um, it means that we will get a competitive advantage yes. because in our trade with them. And therefore, they will make it very much more difficult to get onto their markets because they'll say, look, you're, you risk undercutting um, our businesses because you're not complying with environmental standards. You're not complying with labor standards. UK, on the other hand, would say, well, look, we haven't really got, there's not an appetite in the country for widespread deregulation. So we'll, we'll more or less mirror the standards, but we've got the possibility of dealignment. But that's the problem. Even the threat of dealignment's enough um, for the EU to put barriers up. And that's coming through loud and clear at the moment from the UK government. That's right. And that's why, so Sajid Javid said very clearly in the Financial Times, yeah. we will be doing dealignment. And, and then, then he backtracked at, um, at Davos, didn't he? to be backtracking a bit because, of course, the practical point is, even if we have complete dealignment, any goods that the UK manufacturers want to sell in the EU will still have to comply with the EU standards in the same way that Chinese goods, which are sold on the EU market, have to comply with the EU standards. And therefore, will a manufacturer want to manufacture according to two standards, some UK standard and the EU standard, or will in fact it just be more convenient to have one production line and manufacture according to EU standards only, because of course there's 450 million of them, or 
um, we manufacture have two production lines and manufacture according to two standards. You know, the reality is that manufacturers will have to align even if the country yes. as a whole does not. I've, I've noticed the aviation industry, for example, in, in the UK, um, it, there would be no purpose in them deviating from alignment uh, under the EASA uh, arrangements. Can I just go back to the role the ECJ might or might not have in our future relationship with Europe? If you have... If the European Union was to raise objections to uh, uh, certain goods being sold in Europe because their price was too competitive due to the advantages that come from leaving the European Union, what would happen to those goods? The European Union would stop. They couldn't be moved to Europe. Therefore, uh, the people trying to sell those goods would struggle. No, they would just, they, it, what they would do is what they would say um, that there would need to be um, checks at the border, there'd need to be checks of rules of origin, and all of that slows up um, market penetration. And that's really important in the car industry, uh, where just-in-time production is crucial. I think Honda has some huge figures, something like 300, 400 lorries an hour come to the Honda factory. Um, and the, and the just-in-time production only works if there is completely smooth um, yeah. transition across the border, i.e. Completely, completely smooth transit across the but border. But as Sajid Javid said, they've had three years to get ready for it. The fact they don't know what they're getting ready for, <laughs> I suppose, is a, is, is a subject of discussion. Just, just by way of conclusion, uh, Catherine, it, in your professional opinion, would we be better off working with Europe with the, through the ECJ as a sort of arbitrator or breaking away? C could, we, could we survive effectively away from the ECJ, keeping the Brexiteers happy? It would be possible using the model that you already yeah. find in the divorce text, the withdrawal agreement. Um, but it does mean, um, and that's much more compatible with sort of international trade models. The EU is unique in having such a strong role for yeah. the Court of Justice, but it will come at a price. And one of the things that I think has been a real problem in the debate so far is that, well, in fact, there hasn't been much a debate. There's been a sort of indication yeah. that it's possible to have, you know, all things. There are no trade-offs. There will be trade-offs, and for some people, the trade-off is it's great um, that yeah. we will have much more regulatory freedom, um, but that comes at a price, and they're happy to have to pay that price, i.e. Um, delays at the border, and this will have implications for particularly yeah. the automobile sector. But those trade-offs have not been articulated because, of course, nobody wants to tell the public bad news, which is that there will be these things, nothing, there's nothing, nothing, no such thing as a free lunch. Ain't that the truth. Um, Catherine Barnard, <laughs> Professor of EU Law, thank you for, for walking us through that uh, in baby steps because I have to say I, I have a much clearer vision about the role of the ECJ in future, although I suspect our UK government is going to do everything it can to avoid coming under its auspices.